Welcome to the first Dragon Talk of 2021, everyone. Yeah! Happy New Year, Dragon Talk! So excited to be back here. Aren't yes. you, Shelly? Yes! Happy New Year, Greg! Happy New Year! 2021! It's fantastic. I yes. am Greg Tito, in case you had forgotten. And this is Shelly Moo. Zenoble. noble. You know, it's funny. I signed up for some email list and I must have put in my username is like Shelly Moo and they think Moo is my name. Oh. And I keep getting emails from them and they're like, hey, Moo, check out these deals we think you might like. And I'm not going to correct them because I mm. kind of love it. It's nice. Nice to get, yeah. uh, you know. Calls your uh, your nickname sometimes by marketing yeah. emails. Everyone loves that. <laughs> and now I'll know if they sell my name anywhere. If other people start calling me, hey, move. Oh, that's a good thing to. Yeah, right. You can yeah. kind of trace it like patient zero. I like that. Yes, exactly. Contact <laughs> tracing at its finest. Did you have a good break, Shelley? You know, let's. I did. Let's just say, yes. It was. Yes. It was a nice break. It was good. Yeah. And you? There's How about so much you? subtext in there. Yeah. yeah. It was a good break as well break. for me. To, went so fast, though. That's the thing. You're like, oh, I've got you know, three weeks. It'll be like so long. And it, yes. it was like, I'm going to play. I, was, I thought I was going to play tons of more games. Oh. Um, but I did get I, to play some D&D with uh, my girls. That was super fun. That's good. Yeah. We've been, I've been doing like little mini sessions, I call them them, because we're only like half hour or 45 minutes. Oh, that's with, perfect. Um, Edna, as she was playing through some Frost Maiden. We were playing uh, uh, Rhyme of the Frost Maiden. And the structure of that is so great because you can just do like, oh, we'll just go to this town, do this quest, and go to this town and do this quest. And we were doing little bite-sized, you know, sessions along the way. Fiona joined us for one session and... She was playing a rogue, and she immediately started to steal from her sister. Oh, no. That's, that's very Fiona. I like it. It's it on was, brand. It was very on brand. Uh, and then I tried to steer it back by having her criminal contact uh, give the stuff. that She stole, Edna's playing a wizard. She stole the staff and spell book of her sister. Okay. <laughs> and then and I had her uh, uh, criminal contact bring it back. To her, to Edna, so that she could go on with the uh, with the adventure with the tools of a wizard. Um, and the guy's like, "You can get a lot more if you play along for a little while." To to Fiona's character, who was playing a, a thief, and she immediately was like, "Dad ruined it. Dad ruined my story because he gave it back." And I'm like, "Oh, oh my god! You really, just couldn't take the hint, could you?" She doesn't get the whole like playing as a party, like the cooperative. I, I think she gets it. She just doesn't want she to do it. She just rejected it. Exactly. Exactly. So it'll be a learning process. We're starting up doing something with um, some uh, of my nieces uh, playing. They've told me they're playing D&D. So we're what? Start they're older. They're like in their 20s. So Really? Yeah. Well, that'll be fun. Yeah. We'll see if having the adult peer pressure will help, uh, you know, get the group going. Yeah. I mean, there's Edna's very patient, but I imagine that... There's only so much of that uh, a party would tolerate with a, a party member who's constantly out to get them before, like, they just leave you. Exactly. Yeah. You get, yeah. You get the gist. Um, but we are excited about our episode today for Dragon Talk. We talked to Tony Dieterlizzi, 
an amazing artist and writer um, at the end of last year. So some of our references might be a little bit off uh, as we were talking through it. But I don't think we did anything, you know, dated as we were talking. Did you? No, I feel like this is a timeless interview, um, Tony, because of his wonderful uh, books that will remain um, probably classics in kids' libraries for years and years and years and years to come. Yeah. So um, those of you listening might know him best from his uh, Spider Wick Chronicles, the yeah. short story, uh, uh, children's stories um, that are quite awesome. But you D and D fans will know him as the artist behind the Planescape setting in the mid '90s uh, at what was TSR at the time. Uh, and he's got lots of great stories about that time, what it was like working on that project. Uh, I learned a lot in this interview. Uh, I yeah. didn't know that he was the only artist that was on that project the entire time yeah. um, from start to finish, uh, basically. So it's uh, super interesting to see his interpretation of um, the you know, the philosophies behind the Planescape planes uh, and how they all work and, and his visualization of them are, are one of the reasons why that setting is uh, dear to so many people. Talk about creative liberties and creative freedoms that's it was pretty impressive for sure yeah yeah so enjoy that walk down memory lane when we do our interview with tony uh, a fantastic person we also were in new york city at the same time uh he and i uh so oh yeah we we shared some uh bits about living in brooklyn um uh, around the turn of the century Ooh, i guess you can actually say it that way it was around the the turn of the century century. oh it makes it sound so fancy it really does. And like so long ago. Yeah. Which, I guess. I guess it really is a long time ago. years ago. I know. Yeah. Uh, 20 years. Crazy. Uh, so that's exciting. We got lots of great stuff planned for Dungeons and Dragons over the next few months. We can't spoil any of that here now, but I hope people were able to get into playing D&D uh, over the break with their families, with other people online. There's lots of opportunities for that. There's a D- D&D Discord channel, uh, as well as uh, an amazing um, uh, portal, the Yawning Portal, for you to join in and and, uh, play with other people online. So I hope people are taking advantage of that. And we've got another weekend of online play coming up. Yeah. Yeah. uh, So it's a great, great place for you to gather up your party and and sign up and play or... If you've just wanted to try D&D or you maybe you don't have a party yet, this is a great way to find some people to play with. Just sign up, jump into a table. The dungeon masters are there ready and waiting for you. And let me tell you, these are some of the best of the best dungeon masters. And they are standing by ready to take you on a fantastic adventure. Uh, Dungeon masters are standing by. They're standing by right now. That's so So, fun. And lots of family friendly uh, games there. You can kind of check that as being one of the uh, criteria that you're looking for uh, when searching for a game. Um, and I know that because I got a lot of people anecdotally over uh, December who were just getting into Dungeons and Dragons with their kids and wanted to find out how to get started. What's the best way to do it? Yeah. You know, other than just dungeon mastering and playing for yourself, like, how can they find groups online? And uh, the Yawning Portal tool is a great way to do that. Yeah. Yeah, and maybe um, maybe you were gifted the starter set for D and D, and you want to get a just have somebody walk you through how to play D and D. Great place to do it. D and D virtual learn weekends. to play. I love it. Yes. And that's um, 
uh, January 15th through the 19th, I believe. Is that right? 15th through the 17th? 17th, yeah. Yeah. The Friday through Sunday. Very excited. Um, Also exciting was going through all of Tasha's Cauldron of Everything uh, over the break. It was so much fun to delve in and share some of the subclass ideas. My daughter's actually playing one of the subclasses as she got to level two. She's playing the Order of the Scribe. Uh, which is a super awesome wizard subclass uh, that you start out with a quill that writes things uh, and then you can wave your quill, the back feather end of your quill on the paper and it magically erases. And I'm like, oh my God, that's such a a great thing. And as soon as she read that, she's like, yes, I want to do that. I think that's so cool. And it is, in fact. See, I love like when you find that like thing that just like sparks the imagination. Like, yep, I'm in, I'm in because I want to do that one little thing. And there's so many of those in Tasha's Collagen of Everything. It feels like it's a jumping off point for so many uh, fun stories to tell. Uh, and we are going to chat with Jeremy Crawford uh, for a Sage Advice segment around some things in Tasha's Cauldron of Everything, perhaps. Let's give it a listen. Wonderful. Welcome to another segment of Sage Advice, where we speak to Jeremy Crawford about all the fun things about rules within Dungeons and Dragons, as well as some design philosophy about it. Hi, Jeremy. How are you doing? Hi, I'm doing well. Great to see you, Greg. Great to see you, too. This is our first recording of 2021, and it's very exciting. Yeah, yeah. I am happy for the new year, and I think it's going to be a great one. Me too, uh, because we've got all these sidekicks that we can recruit into our party, uh, which is the topic of this sage advice. We have talked about sidekicks and their implementation in the Essentials Kit before, as well as them being included in Tasha's Collagen of Everything, but uh, I've been using them a lot actually over the break, and I thought it'd be a good uh, topic to, to dump into. So, so Jeremy, what are sidekicks and how can DMs use them uh, effectively? Sidekicks, uh, which are fully fleshed out as a new option in Tasha's Cauldron of Everything, allow a group of characters to have an NPC join their group or multiple NPCs and go on adventures with them. That's that's sort of sidekicks in a nutshell. It, it sprung originally, this design idea sprung originally from our desire to make it easier for a, a group to play D&D with a small number of players because right. we thought sometimes you have just the DM and one player or maybe two and you really want to play D&D, but it might feel like too much for each of the players to play more than one full-fledged player character or the DM doesn't want to recraft the entire adventure so that it's not too deadly for just one or two characters. So sidekicks help fill the gap by letting you have one or two player characters then joined by one or two sidekicks and now you can go on an adventure. And to achieve that vision of making it easy to to play with a smaller number of players than is usual, because usually we assume around four or five players uh, when we design our adventures, uh, we wanted to make sure the sidekicks were really simple Mm -hmm. uh, because we knew uh, these are going to be characters that people are playing in addition to their player character, or these are going to be NPCs uh, that uh, the DM is controlling in addition to everything else the dungeon master uh, is doing. Uh, and I see we have a friend uh, in the background. Uh, and yes. 
Has, and honestly, I've been playing sidekicks a lot with Edna uh, as uh, the the main player character. Uh, I have a younger daughter uh, who has not necessarily grasped uh, how to play Dungeons Dragons. The first time we played uh, over a break, she ended up stealing from Edna's character uh, as a rogue. And while well, that was awesome, uh, <laughs> kind of derailed after that. So I've been playing with my one daughter and have a great cast of sidekicks uh, that she recruited. Uh, that all have different personalities and different things, and I'm playing uh, a lot of those personalities, and it's been a great way to add some of those inter-party dynamics, even if you're only playing with one or two players. Yeah, yeah. And and I love that uh, you're having this firsthand experience uh, with these rules. Uh, I love them as a DM, not only because it allows uh, the type of play experience you're having, but the sidekick rules also are a great way for a DM to easily create NPCs who might not even be sidekicks. Uh, We mentioned in Tasha's Cauldron that sure, the sidekicks can literally be sidekicks, but they don't have to be. The DM could use these rules to quickly customize an NPC who's a villain or a friend who never joins uh, the adventurers on uh, their, their quests. Uh, Similarly, a player might decide the only character that they're playing is one of these sidekicks. And that's one of the options we present uh, in Tasha's Cauldron. That if, you know, as you look at the three sidekick classes, the expert, uh, the warrior, and the spellcaster, if you find yourself as a player thinking, wow, I'd love to actually play one of these, Mm -hmm. you can. And they're not going to be quite as powerful as the classes in the player's handbook or the artificer in Tasha's Cauldron, but they're still going to be able to make a meaningful contribution in a group. And they have some fun uh, elements all their own. Uh, For instance, the expert has the ability to help other people using the help action in ways that actually our full-fledged player characters can't. Uh, And is a kind of a wonderful uh, friend or buddy that you can have uh, with any group, making that group feel more effective. And and because we knew that sidekicks could be used in all of these different ways, as literal sidekicks, as customized NPCs, uh, as your sole character, uh, we flesh them out as if they were complete character classes, We made sure they're easy for DMs and players to implement. And we also made sure that they are completely flexible. One of the things I love pointing out is that the warrior class in particular can be applied to a creature of any type. Uh, And so when you're imagining uh, someone joining your group, that someone could be a wolf or a flumph. Uh, or, or you know, some some other creature that uh, meets the requirements set out in the sidekick rules, and they could join you on your adventures. The spellcaster and the expert class are similarly flexible. They do each, though, have one requirement that the warrior class does not have, and that is the expert and the spellcaster classes. Uh, expect the creature who takes on one of those classes to be able to speak at least one language. Uh, we we actually wrestled with this as we were doing the design because we we needed the 
given the concept of those two classes, uh, that especially the spellcaster, but to a lesser extent the expert, that they have certain there's certain linguistic assumptions about each of those that they have to do with kind of knowledge that can be expressed uh, in language. That language, by the way, doesn't necessarily need to be spoken. In 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 the rules, we say able to speak one language, but speaking in D and D can include telepathy. You might be mm. speaking mentally. So there are creatures in the game that might not have a verbal language listed in their stat block, uh, but they have telepathy listed. They qualify uh, for the expert and the spellcaster because With the language requirement a way to also um, um, like uh, uh, be like an intelligence uh, gauge as well. Yes. So and 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 that's a your question is very insightful because our early drafts of these rules instead had an intelligence minimum, mm. but what we realized is that was an ineffective. Uh, bar to set for you know you must you must be this high to enter uh, this this class because we actually have a number of folk in D and D whose intelligence scores are all over all over the spectrum who are able to communicate and who honestly could be an expert or a spellcaster so we ended up tossing out uh, an intelligence minimum. Uh, as the requirement for entry. And we realized really what's just important is that this creature be able to communicate their either their spell casting uh, or the knowledge that they bring to the group as an expert. That's really cool. Uh, I think that makes, makes a lot of sense because you can't, you know, you can't cast a spell at least with having some knowledge of what the, the spell vocal components would end up being. Uh, and the, I guess the expert, you could argue, you know, needs at least a basic understanding of communication, uh, and you need to be able to do that, and that is a, a, a nice bar to set. Is that the first time being able to speak a language has been used as a, uh, a requirement for something in Dungeons & Dragons? Uh, it, I think it has appeared before over the games many years, um, but this is the first time in 5th edition that it has been used as a prereq for... Uh, adopting a major option, like in this case, uh, a sidekick class, uh, Got it. and and it took us a while. We you know we we were trying ability score minimums, but again, th- I personally went through all the creatures in the game uh, with intelligence scores at a per- certain point and discovered that there were actually creatures with intelligence scores below the minimum that we had set who legitimately could be experts or spellcasters. And I realized that the common thread in our creatures who I think could legitimately be experts or spellcasters was language. Right. Uh, that, that, that was the thing that connected them, this ability to communicate with other folk. Because we expect not only are spellcasters engaging with the words of magic, but experts are sharing knowledge. And that's why for us... The, the requirement, uh, another way of saying it, uh, rather than language, the requirement is communication, that, that you need to be able to communicate your thoughts, your help, your spells uh, to, to enter into one of these classes. That makes whereas, total sense. Whereas the warrior, uh, the Just only need requirement... to bash something. <laughs> bash or bite or claw. Yeah. Uh, uh, 
uh, or be defensive because one of the options with the warrior, uh, because you do get to make a little choice when you pick the warrior, and that is, uh, are you emphasizing offense or defense? So you could make a warrior who's actually not uh, aggressive at all, uh, but who's really there to defend you uh, and your other companions, uh, sort of the almost like a bodyguard or just the faithful friend who wants to make sure uh, nothing bad happens to you. The uh, the the description of, of sidekicks and Tasha's is awesome because you also uh, have the ability for these sidekick characters, especially if they are uh, being used by the party over the course of an entire campaign, uh, can level up and gain in, in power with them. Um, and I find it really interesting. I'd love to kind of hear more from the community now that Tasha has been out in the, in the wild for a little while about how this, this feature is being used. Have you heard anything from, uh, from people on Twitter about, about their sidekicks you know, growing in power along with the party? Uh, I haven't heard stories yet about that journey, but I have happily seen people talking about the, they have sidekicks in the group you know, people have asked me about the language requirement of the expert. Uh, I think partly because people are eager to have all sorts of different creatures uh, end up as sidekicks uh, because we know people love essentially making friends, uh, gaining companions uh, over the course of their D&D adventures. Uh, the community also had an important role in the fleshing out of the sidekick rules as they exist in Tasha's Cauldron. These rules appeared originally in Unearthed Arcana, and in our original incarnation, there were several things that we just weren't clear enough about, and the community helped focus a spotlight on several places where we clearly needed to put in some more rules and make it crystal clear how sidekicks interact with your party. One example of that is we originally weren't totally clear about like what happens if you're like 10th level and gain a sidekick. So that's why now in Tasha's Cauldron, we tell you when your sidekick joins your group, they basically instantly level up to the average level of your party. So if your average level is 15th level, your sidekick is now 15th level. Uh, and that's a, a great example of the, 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 continuous conversation we have with the D&D community mm -hmm. helping the game get better and better. Another example of the community's feedback uh, helping the rules get clearer is people rightly asked when we published the original draft of the sidekick rules, what happens when a sidekick get, reaches zero hit points? Are they like a typical monster who perishes when their hit points drop to zero? Or are they like a player character who gets to make death saving throws and and who's a, more difficult to finish off than, than a typical monster? And so that's why in the rules, now in Tasha's Cauldron, we're crystal clear about the fact, no, sidekicks are intended, like any player character or important NPC, to make death saving throws uh, when they reach zero. Uh, because... We know these are your buddies. We we don't want them winking out of existence uh, too easily. Uh, they, like the other important characters in the story, get a chance to hang on for dear life and, and adventure another day. That's great. Um, what I like about the sidekick rules in Tasha's is that they even more effectively set sidekicks up to be 
not necessarily replacements, but like the, the, the spiritual successor to henchmen uh, mm-hmm. in how you played first edition uh, Dungeons and Dragons or second edition, you, you know, that was almost assumed by the design that you would have a, not just a party of four or five player characters, but then their retinue of people uh, with, with them from, from the thief, uh, level one thief that you put you know, forward in the dungeon to make sure that they sprung all the traps or disarmed them if they were able to. Uh, you know, t- and, and sidekicks kind of fit that meld of like, oh, I want more options of what to do, not necessarily to put uh, uh, everybody in harm's way and also have that, you know, uh, you can almost have like a, a mentor-mentee relationship with your sidekick and things like that. And, and, it, and it does really well for that. Yeah, yeah. And it... It is funny how much the game has evolved over its almost half century of existence. Because as you were talking, I was I was reminded of the fact that the assumption in the earliest days of D&D was that there's a high chance D&D characters would not survive their first <laughs> or second level of play. And so one of the reasons why you had all these henchmen and hirelings is uh, the mortality rate was very high. I mean, because often going into a dungeon in the early days of D&D was almost sometimes like walking into a wood chipper. I mean, it, yeah. was, it was bad. Uh, and and sometimes then your henchman or hireling would become your new character because the character you thought was your character died in the first room. Um, mm-hmm. And so it's, you know, I was just a few moments ago saying, we don't want your sidekicks to, you know, easily die. And I think, wow, uh, D&D has come a long way. <laughs> we're like, now we're like, we don't even want your buddy to to die too easily. Whereas like back in the day, it was like, nope, your your main character just dropped in room one. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> at least you had someone familiar that you could pick up and play uh, for the rest of the session, at least until yeah. you got through it. Um, but I also wanted to ask about one thing because I've been I, I wanted to, I cracked open Tasha's and I was using it for uh, the Frost Maiden campaign over the break, and I was very excited. And you know, a lot of the rules in there are are good about leveling up and stuff. But I found myself going back to the Essentials Kit and pulling out my rules there to use the stat blocks that are mm-hmm. included mm-hmm. in the 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 thing for the so. Um, you know, was that did you did you assume that people were going to have access to that, or that people would use the template uh, kind of system in, in Tasha's to take any NPC and then just put the template on top of it? So, so the assumption in Tasha's is that you will take a creature stat block from the Monster Manual or Mordenkainen's Tome of Foes or some other book and apply the rules in Tasha's to that stat block. In the Essentials Kit, what we did is we basically did the work for you, where mm-hmm. we we took, uh, I believe our starting point, I'm, I'm looking back to when I, when I because I built those stat blocks myself, I believe I started with the commoner uh, stat block in the Monster Manual, and then just applied uh, options from uh, Tasha's, and then made a few uh, tweaks. Uh, or rather applied options from the draft of Tasha's, because of course, by at that point, Tasha's Cauldron uh, didn't exist yet. But, <laughs> was, but the rules were in draft form already when we were working on the Essentials Kit. Uh, and so really there you get to see in the Essentials Kit uh, some pre-built sidekicks. Uh, whereas in Tasha's, we give you the tools to build them yourself. Now, I actually would love for us to do some more pre-built ones because mm. uh, I think it, it's a lot easier to just take you know that stat block and then here are the changes you make to it. Uh, now, the essentials kit ones will get you. I 
I believe we go up to sixth level in the essentials kit, where of course the rules in Tasha's Cauldron will let you go all the way up to 20th level. Uh, yeah, if, which is helpful. Yeah. 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 Um, yeah, that's and the pre-built thing. I think you know really does lean into the ease of being able to use uh, these as well. You know, and and you know, in in the world now where not many people are meeting up face to face to play Dungeons and Dragons, you know, so much is done digitally, and all the digital uh, uh, creations of you know your, uh, of making your character, you know, having a few ready to go step blocks uh, is is kind of essential if you're going to start using uh, uh, sidekicks like this. But you can also just run it as a monster out of it and say it's a sidekick and then you know in between sessions just apply all the things uh on it and that's uh you know certainly viable as well yeah yeah and and uh there are even some stat blocks in the back of the player's handbook uh that people could use as a starting point for their sidekick uh, okay all the beasts and things that mm -hmm. are in the back yeah yeah, yeah, and and a number of those creatures in the at the back of the PH uh, meet the uh, challenge rating requirements that are in the sidekick rules. Uh, so players actually, if they have their player's handbook with them at the table, uh, they have baseline stat blocks right there in their player's handbook that they can use as a baseline for their sidekicks. That's a really good point. And you know, and then we then we talk about the reskinning uh, thing that we've done in a previous stage advice. We're like, okay, this is the wolf stat block, but this is actually, you know, Bob the builder uh, that you met in town, uh, even though he's using a wolf stat block. No one will know. No yeah. Will know. Yeah. Yeah, as you know, I I love reskinning. Uh, I uh, inc I heartily encourage people to do it. Uh, I, I know sometimes DMs and players feel like uh, they're cheating uh, when they do that, but you're not at all. Uh, this uh, reskinning is is sort of one of the the core pillars of D and D kit bashing. Uh, of, <laughs> of like, no, take take whatever you like in the game, especially DMs, and and change how it looks, how it sounds, uh, how it interacts with the world to suit your story. Uh, that. That is the game working as intended. That is not a cheat. For sure. And I even did that when I was using uh, some of the Essentials Kit uh, uh, cards that have amazing portraits of characters, uh, I believe, uh, done by Sean Wood. And, yeah. uh, and, and they are very evocative and they bring forth um, the character kind of immediately. One of the ones that my, my daughter latched onto when we were playing... Um, well, we had, we had three of them, and it was going to be uh, two experts and a spellcaster. And I was like, yeah, you really kind of need, because she was playing a wizard. I was like, it'd be nice to have someone who's who's there to bash. So I just ended up taking one of them and turning it into a warrior, even though he's using the portrait of, of someone else. And, you know, so even that little amount of reskinning um, did what the sidekicks were designed to do, which is to flesh out that party. Uh, yeah, absolutely. And, and these rules, at the end of the day, are are here to help DMs and players fill the gaps in their group. And so that reskinning element is, is crucial. That, that's a part of it. And, and by the way, that's also why even in the art for the sidekicks, we purposefully presented uh, some example sidekicks in the imagery that people might not have considered. Like I, I have the book open in front of me on my desk and I, I'm looking at like 
the Bullywug spellcaster, because I bet a lot of people it wouldn't have occurred to them yeah. to have to have a Bullywug wandering around, you know, with a with a little spell book and a pointed hat. And <laughs> and and these rules are meant to empower that kind of fun and and combinations that people never would have expected. Uh, you know, again, we have, you know, the the turtle expert here or the, you know, the the, I love the the Furbolg chef who, <laughs> who might be a journeying with you as a warrior, uh, and their weapon is a frying pan. Uh, you know that, that I really encourage people not only when they engage with these rules, but really with any of our storytelling. Think out of the box. Uh, you can combine different types of folk uh, with with different rules options to really create some evocative, delightful storytelling. Absolutely. And just to reiterate one thing, well, actually before you, one question and then the final thing before we wrap up, um, you know, you mentioned the chef, uh, can, can feats be applied to sidekicks? In that way, because there is that awesome chef feat uh, in, in yes. Tasha's as well. Yes, uh, I, I, I love that you asked about that, uh, partly because uh, the chef feat uh, we designed pretty late in the Tasha's uh, design process. Uh, it, was, it was the idea of uh, a, a designer who's just joined our staff, uh, Tamor Raymond, and uh, it's just a sheer delight uh, you know, like you you make these treats that are so good that they you know they make <laughs> uh, they make your characters more resilient. And the answer to your question: Can sidekicks have feet? Yes. Uh, if if a sidekick, uh, when they get the ability score improvement uh, uh, class feature, if they want to take a feat instead, they absolutely can. Uh, just like a player character. So, oh, okay, good. So you you can create. Uh, that chef sidekick. That's awesome. All right, last thing, and I, it, you mentioned it early on, but I just we'll kind of want to hammer it home. I think these sidekicks are perfect for introducing people into the game. You know, I think when you are you are presented with uh, a full character sheet of you know uh, a warlock, multi class with a paladin, and you know, there, the, a lot of the options I consistently get this with new players now are like, where is it? What am I supposed to be doing? What do I? What are all the things? And sidekicks provide pretty much most of the basic uh, abilities and things that you would do with your D and D character um, without a lot of the extraneous. Um, things that that you know can cause confusion. Now, obviously, all players will hopefully elevate to you know creating those those fanciful characters that are in their are their dreams and in their fantasies. But this is a nice way to give them something uh, right side out of the box and allow them to start playing right away and feel like they are an, a warrior, a spellcaster, an expert. Those are very uh, you know common tropes that that are easy to understand for for those laymen out there who are getting into Dungeons and Dragons. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I think these are a fabulous starting point for someone who's just starting to dip their toe into the D&D ocean. Uh, and I would love to see people, you know, on DMs Guild and elsewhere, you know, maybe do adventures where everyone is assumed to be playing a sidekick. Uh. Uh, and, uh, you know, you could have an entire group of just warriors, experts, and spellcasters. And I, I think uh, that would be a, a marvelous way to explore what people sometimes refer to as a zero-level experience of, you know, what what it, what is it like to adventure before you have one of the, the character classes in the Player's Handbook or the Artificer in Tasha's Cauldron? Uh, well, you could do that uh, playing a group of sidekicks. That's perfect. Yeah, 
Right. That, I do remember a lot of zero level uh, stuff being exciting for, for new players. And because uh, many of them don't know the tropes, right? And so they don't know what they want to do. And they, they only really experience that during play. And here's a, here's a great way for them to do that. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Jeremy, for taking time uh, and talking through uh, sidekicks again. I think they're a fascinating feature. And how can people, uh, after listening to this and, and playing with them in Tasha's, uh, ask you any questions about how they're implemented? I can be reached on Twitter at Jeremy E. Crawford. Excellent. Well, I look forward to sidekicking it up with you uh, in 2021. Same here. Awesome. Thanks, Jeremy. Yeah, thank you. Jeremy Crawford knows how to sidekick it. I love sidekicks. I love sidekicking. I love kicking it with sidekicks. I love kicking it with sidekicks. There's so much yeah. fun. I've been doing my entire um, campaign with sidekicks because, as I said, my my youngest daughter, Fiona, uh, may not be the best party member, so I filled out the party. Uh, and those are some of the best fun characters uh, that I get to play with uh, my oldest daughter. They get to be ones like a very... Uh, sad kind of uh, um, cleric. Uh, another is a very vile, farty uh, warrior, uh, and the other guy is like the handsome, like dashing, nice bard guy. Uh, and so they're nice. I play, I get to play these three parts of my personality with my daughter. It's super fun. So, um, does Fiona play with the sidekicks too? Because you can always use the sidekicks to kind of discipline. Oh, it's yes. not you. It's the sidekicks. Yeah, we never got that far. It was, yeah, but they would be in the same. It's a good role, and, yeah. And every day, you know, adventuring together. Yes, for sure. Like sometimes we use um, our cat to like mm-hmm. Bart and I will use the cat to like tell each other what we're annoyed with. And so it's not me. It's con- it, it's Zelda telling Bart that like if you're sitting three feet from the water bowl for the pets, fill it up when it's empty. Why is it always mommy who has to do that? I didn't just say it. To Zelda, you're like, well, Zelda said mean? it. I'm like, well, that's weird. Well, yeah, she's annoyed by that. I don't know. <laughs> it's exactly the same thing with sidekicks in D&D that's Adventures. What, yes. I think those, that's a role that the sidekicks can play. Absolutely. Um, yeah. But here is a role uh, that I just will never be able to play, which is an artist uh, being able to, to draw things no. and make it look amazing. And I love talking to people who can turn those ideas into something that you're like, oh my God, that's great. And Tony Dietrich-Lizzi is one of those. So let's give a warm welcome to him on Dragon Talk for 2021. Everyone, let us welcome Tony Dietrich-Lizzi to Dragon Talk. Welcome, Tony. Yay! Thank you for having me. Very excited to be here. We are so excited to have you here. As I was saying before, there are everybody in my household is excited that you're here. You're lots of fans. Oh, that's the- that's terrific. I'm. It's weird. I feel old and 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 lucky when a longtime fan is like, you know, we started with you know this old second edition monster uh, manual, and then my kids read Spiderwick, and it's pretty amazing. Yeah, and then their kids. Who knows what yeah. they'll be reading. But hopefully you'll still be writing and illustrating because you're wonderfully talented. Thank you. Thank you. Absolutely. Um, we just read in the house uh, the newest book, Kenny, 
Kenny and oh no no wait we started with Kenny and the Dragon so I'll show you here um, and I asked my son to please write a review oh I like and that. would you like to hear his review I absolutely would he actually finished it yesterday and I know it's going to be better than any Goodreads review I'd ever get I mean you excited. might I will I will give you permission if you want to blurb him on the front of your book but watch I, out Publishers Weekly he we said, got we got a new reviewer Quinn's gives you um, five stars yes out of out yes. of five. Uh, and he said, oh, I love it. I like the rabbit and how there's all these animals. The night is cool. I like the creation, the world creation, and how the dragon and the rabbit are best friends. I really want to live in this world. Aww. Aww. So That's a great sweet. review. Yes. There, you go. there it is. That's it. Yeah. I want to live That's in that world, too. Yeah. Me, too. I mean, it is. It is an, an adorably wonderful, wonderful story. Um, Kenny being this adorable little rabbit, Thank and you. Graham being the dragon. Thank you. Thank you. That then, was, you know, we that that book came out a while ago. It was during the height of the Spiderwick books. Mm. Um, so, geez, ten, ten years ago now. Um, wow. And I, the publisher had offered at the time. They knew I loved all classic kids books like you know Alice in Wonderland and Wonderful Wizard. I love all that stuff. It's such a part of you know why I do what I do. And all that stuff's in public domain. So they're like, do you want to do an illustrated version of Alice or or Wizard of Oz? And and there's a lot of versions of those already out there. If you go to the bookstore, you'll see various, you know, incarnations. But the Reluctant Dragon was just one of those little stories that I just absolutely loved as a kid. And I think it's because now that I'm older, I think because I've Felt like I was the dragon, the the misunderstood monster, <laughs> which yeah, ties into D and D because I love yeah. monsters more than the player characters. I always was like, yeah, I feel like I'm I'm like a kobold or a knoll or a you know shambling right. mound some days. <laughs> yeah. Did you? So have I feel a... like. Sorry. No, it's okay. Go ahead. I was just gonna say I kind of feel like we jumped in without fully giving you. Um, a proper introduction so that people know exactly how, I mean, you're not, you're, you, the, you, your uh, resume go, runs real deep in, in, especially if you're a, a D&D fan. I mean, you alluded to, to longtime fans, but they may be very familiar with um, some of, of your work from, was it second edition D&D? Yeah. <laughs> you had to recall that, like, how far back? Well, how far back? Let me right. do the math here. Second edition. Yes. Yeah. Um, yeah, and then like not just you're, you've authored so many books, so many books, um, but you're also a, a, an illustrator and um, you've written some wonderful geeky blog posts that people may have read and uh, <laughs> found inspiration from. But yeah, I mean, you have, why don't you just like in a nutshell, more articulately than, than I did, just tell us a little <laughs> bit about your history. <laughs> are you You've, you're so many things i want to talk about spiderwick i want to talk about the books i want to talk about illustrations <laughs> uh, well i'm tony dieterlisi i am a uh he, a he long lifetime dungeons and dragons player and i was fortunate enough to contribute to the game uh, mostly through the 90s um and probably many gamers would know me from the uh, planescape role-playing game which i was the um the primary illustrator for for almost 10 years, wow. which TSR had never really done. And I don't know if they've done it since. It was kind of a crazy experiment. Anyway, and then I, I went on to illustrate for Magic the Gathering for many years, also in the 90s and early 2000s, all while pursuing a career in children's book uh, 
uh, writing and illustration, and I've done children's books now for 20 years. And wow. um, most famous, many people, as we mentioned earlier, uh, probably know me from the Spiderwick Chronicles, which was absolutely inspired by the Monster Manual, if you, you couldn't figure that out. <laughs> <laughs> that was the jumping off point, for sure. There it yep. is. Yeah. But yeah, I, I, the, the Planescape visual look is you know, what I think of when I, when I hear your name, like I was, I'm, oh, that's, that's the, you know, the, the aesthetic, the, uh, the weirdness. Was there, was there something about that setting that spoke to you other than being assigned it? <laughs> you know, like, was it, was it, was it, was it part of, um, you know, your, 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 uh, milieu as an artist? Um, well, you know, to, to, to go back a little bit on, in that early nineties, Greg, I mean, I, I'd been asked to, my first project for TSR was Dragon Mountain. Mm. And uh, which I did okay illustrating. It was way more than I had banked. I thought I was going to get like a module or something. I get to do like, you know, three or four illustrations for a, an adventure module. I didn't think they'd give me a box set. Um, but I excelled at the monsters. Mm. And so Tim Beach was, the des- was like the head designer, the head editor on the Monstrous Manual. And this would have been the first ever color monster manual, if you can when they had vented color finally for D and D, for D and D, and uh, and I, he had originally wanted me to illustrate the whole thing, all three hundred and something entries. Wow. Oh my god! Uh, but there was no way I could have done it in the time allotted, and I didn't. I I, I, I worried that I would rush, and and I didn't want to rush it because that monster manual, those early source books were so inspirational to me, and I didn't want to blow it. I it was I really meant a lot to be asked to do that. And so I think, um, you know, at that time, I, you know, a lot of uh, the staff artists like, you know, Jeff Easley and, 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 and uh, people like Larry Elmore and Clyde Caldwell and Keith Parkinson, all these giants that had worked for TSR during the 80s, they were oil painters. Mm. Um, they were inspired by classic fantasy um, along the lines of like Frank Frazetta and Boris Vallejo and stuff that would have been very popular in the late 70s and the early 1980s. And I was inspired by like Brian Froud and, and Alan Lee and, and then the people that inspired them, like Arthur Rackham, these kind of old fairy tale illustrators that drew, you know, twiggy, creepy, skinny things. So that came through in the art that I did for the, for the Monstrous Manual. And, it, and there was a polarized kind of reception. You know, some people really liked it because I didn't use bright color. I used all brown with more brown and earth tones. Not every monster was jacked. Some of them were fat. Some of them were skinny and scrawny. And, you know, um, and that, I think, caught the eye of the team that was putting together Planescape. And they thought, mm. this guy might be the person to, to do the visuals for this this incredibly epic world that Zeb Cook was was creating um, at the time, and they had actually hired. They had originally wanted me to join his staff, um, oh. and I and I declined, which was a very hard decision. But um, my I was dating uh, a girl who ended up becoming my wife, Angela, and. And it was right at that point where I'm like, I might move to Wisconsin. And it was like, I could see the look in her eyes like. Oh. <laughs> so oh. I, I was able to just remain freelance. And um, you know, here I am. I mean, as I said, I mean, I, I was the sole illustrator, golly, for I'm almost 10 years. It was crazy. It was a roller coaster. It really yeah. was very, when I think back on it, I'm, I'm incredibly thankful that I was given that opportunity because I learned so much. 
during it's, that time. It's really powerful work. I mean, I, I, I have a, one of my favorite t-shirts is the uh, uh, Lady of Pain uh, <laughs> uh, symbol. Yeah. Uh, and there's just something so iconic. And, you know, other than normal D&D t-shirts that I wear, like that's the one that gets the most comments uh, just on, oh, the, sure. on the striking nature of, of that. Uh, oh, was, yeah. That was so, designed by Dana Knudsen. He was the staff artist at the time, but he designed the Lady of Pain. And he was kind of like an in-house concept guy. So he, they had like, like almost like a movie. I guess they probably do it now with the newer iterations of the game and magic. You'd have these kind of concepts of like, this is what we want it to look like. And, um, and Dana did, had done a lot of that initial homework for what mm. Planescape should look like, including designing the Lady of Pain. That's awesome. Yeah, and then so, yeah, so talk, talk us through like what it's like having that kind of creative, not control necessarily, but like the, the, the visual look and then being able to, to iterate on it so that it feels, oh, I, we're introducing a new character or a new thing, but it needs to feel both familiar and new. Um, and that's gotta be, I mean, some of the, the joy I see in watching our art directors now is they bring in new people to, to do, and do that work. So it's gotta be a little bit hard for someone who is, hey, this is my style, but I have to, to keep it fresh not only for the audience, but for yourself? Well, I think it started to um, expand the window of what fantasy art can be. You know what I mean? So I think, you know, at, there was for many years when you, when you said fantasy art, you thought of, you know, Frank Rosetta airbrushed mm -hmm. on the side of a custom van. Like, oh yeah, I know what that is. It's Conan with no shirt on, you know, with a giant axe and a, you know, and a naked girl wrapped around his legs. And, and so I and think you can see every muscle and every yeah you know, every muscle you know. is simultaneously flexed you know? <laughs> as strong <laughs> as it could be yeah it's so impo physically impossible to do um, and I I remember um, I was up at the offices when we were doing some of the initial meetings and Zeb showed me uh, these art books he had got he had purchased in on a recent trip to Japan and it was the art of Yoshitaka Amano who uh, famously, uh, is an amazing famous illustrator, but most famously known for being the lead designer for Final Fantasy. And, and Amano's watercolor sketches uh, have a manga influence, but they're, they're certainly been westernized in a lot of ways, and they were absolutely just mind-blowingly beautiful. And, and he was like, can you do something that, that looks kind of like this? Like, do your frowdy Rackham thing, but can you infuse some of this in it? And I was like, absolutely, because it was pencil and watercolor. It was, it was in a visual medium that I could, I could understand. And so um, we were expanding already then at that point. We were starting to push boundaries of what you could do to describe or illustrate what a Dungeons & Dragons world could look like, that it didn't just have to be these muscly characters, um, that you could have these parts that look different. I kind of think of it almost in a way of like the Marvel expanded universe, how, you know, okay, there's the, the earthbound superheroes, but then when we go in these other universes, you know, things can look like guardians of the galaxy or whatever. So um, it was, it was an amazing time. At the same time, TSR was developing another huge campaign system called Birthright. And frankly, that's where they put <laughs> all the money and all the attention <laughs> was on birthright. So all the, the heads of the company, all the big people, they were like, they slid all their chips on that. They're like, this is going to be the big thing. And, and then they kind of left us alone to create Planescape. So we really pushed what we could do. And, um, 
That's you know, one of the things coming out of doing that monstrous manual was, you know, you had these boxes with a monster kind of just floating in the box. And I remember Don Murin, who's still at Wizards now, yeah. um, was the designer uh, for Planescape. And I remember like a monster wouldn't do that. A monster would want to tear across the page or upset the text or, you know, that's what a monster would do. And, you know, Don was able to kind of figure out how to, I mean, things like doing a text wrap back then were incredibly difficult because we were laying it out like quark. You know, there was no InDesign or, <laughs> you know, the artwork would have been scanned. Even if I did the piece 11 by 14, the scans would have already been scaled down as they're mm. scanning it because they just, the computers just couldn't handle a big high-res file. So it was a really... Um, yeah, the 90s, I didn't even think about that, but the 90s were this weird, uh, uh, you know, old school typesetting and, you know, literally copying and pasting uh, you know, text on a page and then scanning that in. Like there were some people who were still doing it that way uh, during yes. that time while the digital, you know, tools were being developed and, and happening. So, so did you paint every single image, you know, by hand or did you do anything <laughs> digitally? <laughs> it's just funny to me now because of course I painted everything by hand. There was of no... Course. Yeah, I still paint everything by hand. But I mean, I remember they wanted drop shadows and so we would do a sketch a lot of the times don wanted the the artwork um vignetted so in other words it would go to white so they could they could scale it however they wanted and float it anywhere on the page that they mm. felt would work best with the flow of the text and they wanted drop shadows well i didn't you know now you click literally you click a button and, and photoshop <laughs> will give you that drop shadow so this is how we did it i would i would draw it on a piece of paper and then I would paint it, put some color. Then we would rip, I would rip the sheet of paper so it looked like a torn piece of paper. Oh my God. Then I would take a piece of whiteboard and airbrush a shadow and then glue the sheet of paper on it to look like a shadow. And that's, that's how we did the drop shadow. And then shadows. you scanned that whole thing. And then they would scan that. And then, wow. you know. Was yeah. this really that long ago? Because I'm like, <laughs> am I just, the 90s seemed like, that wasn't that long ago. But I mean, to think about, oh God, I guess it is that long. And in computer, you were just born, Shelly. Yeah, I mean, I was just a baby, so what do I know? (laughs) My whole my whole life has been just clicking buttons and Photoshop and getting what you want. Photoshop was out. Photoshop was out. Creative. I mean, no, it's just like thinking of you tearing the paper and airbrushing and how long all of this took. Oh, it took. And then we, I remember we had a, we had a fire one and they were like, oh, it'd be cool if the edges were burned because it was like a fire imp or something. Oh, so yeah. I did the whole drawing and I take a lighter and the thing just goes, woof. <laughs> I oh, no. to do it over again. Oh, it was hilarious. No. And I'm like, okay, maybe I should burn the edges first and then draw it. How uh, long would it take you to do one, like one piece of art? With well, or without a drop the, the, Okay, so when we first, that first year was 1994 when we first started doing Planescape like full tilt. That was the campaign setting, the monster book, and I think Planes of Chaos. So a lot, two box sets and a, and a monster book. So when I finally got hired, I was like, well, who else is contributing? And they're like, it's just you. And I'm like, <laughs> you mean like the entire, like there's, there's four books in this campaign setting and there's another, mo- like, they're like, yeah, it's just going to be you. We just want you to set the look. 
And I'm like, okay. So we looked at the schedule and I said to them, there's only one way I can, I can do this. I'm going to, I'm going to just go to final art and I'm just going to send you guys finished art to keep, because the deadline they had already had their printing deadlines and their release deadlines, but something happened on the development end that delayed the start. Mm. So there was a weird thing in like 93 where they didn't give me any work. And I, I went from like feast to famine because they were feeding me steady work. And I, I was out of art school. So I now had an apartment. I'm paying off student loans. I'm like, this is great. I'm a Dungeons and Dragons illustrator making a living. And then all of a sudden it just stopped. Oh. And the art director, uh, Peggy Cooper, was like, we're holding you for a special project. And I don't know how long it's going to be, but it's going to be a little while before we give you any work. Oh, my God. So they want because they didn't want me tied up on something else when I started. Anyway, that went on in, almost until the end of the year. I want to say like the, right before the holiday, right around this time of the year, I flew up to meet with them for Planescape. But these other deadlines hadn't, they were unmovable, which meant I'd, we'd lost a lot of time, which would have been sketching and approval of the sketching and revising of the sketching. So I said, the only way we're going to make our deadline is if I just go to final art. And if you guys don't like the art, just send it back and I'll just redo it. Mm. And they didn't, they didn't send any of it back. I just went nuts, guys. I just, wow. it was like the wings were grown. They opened up the cage and I just went. Bonkers. Well, it sounds like that might have had to do with, you know, the concentration on birthright and, you know, all the focus being on that and them just yes. being like, all right, well, we hire the right person. Let's just trust their, their luck. visual look. And <laughs> That's a big leap of faith. That's that is. a huge leap of faith, especially when I think back on it now. Because you had huge teams, so it wasn't like this was a, a cheap endeavor. I mean, there was, there was a lot of key people involved on this project. And they were at the same time winding down things like Spelljammer and Dark Sun. They, I think those had kind of run their course at the time. Mm -hmm. So I think they were, you know, looking to do a new campaign. And, you know, we got, you know, everyone loved it. We crossed our fingers and hoped that the rest of the world felt the same way. And, and fortunately for us, they did, you know, and, yeah. and, 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 and so it's a great story. Um, yeah. And especially and, with like the idea, you know, I mean, you mentioned birthright, like, you know, I don't, I don't see that in the zeitgeist as much now as Planescape yeah. is and how much people talk about it. You know, I mean, obviously I think the, um, the video game has a lot to do with that because that brought it out to a whole bunch of different um, uh, audience members who, you know, grew up with it. Uh, yeah. Um, did you, were you involved with the, that at all, Planescape Torment? I wasn't, but um, Colin McComb, who was one of the designers on Planescape, then took the job and moved with, Oh, I can't remember the name of the game company that did that, but yeah, he was Black Isle, he, I think. Maybe, yeah, he was oh, part yeah. of that team, and and you know, TSR owned all my designs, so all the all the design work that I had already done for Planescape was then just sent over to them, and then you know, so they had it all already. So in right, a sense, so it, they it, it, they had still, me for free. <laughs> yeah, it still feels like it's in the in the milieu of of yeah. all of your work uh, for sure. Yeah. But some cool things, little tidbits for any modern day D and D fifth edition D and D fans. You know, the Modron's got a, a reskin during that time, and that was a big. The Modron's almost didn't make it into Planescape, um, and Zeb had called me one afternoon and asked if I knew what they were, and I said, you know, I vaguely remember the weird. I'm like the shape people, you know, the little weird <laughs> the, tri the triangle dudes, <laughs> and he's like. Yeah, yeah, and he's like, "Do you, do you did you ever play him? Did you ever?" I'm like, "I I don't know nothing about them." So he's like, "Read the entry, and see what you think." So I read the entry, and I'm like, "This is amazing!" You know, the whole thing how they ascend to Primus and everything. 
so for some reason, I immediately um, thought of the of the Wizard of Oz, and not really the Tin Man, but more like TikTok from the second book, Ozma of Oz, and some of the other books. Yeah. And so I drew uh, a monodrone like TikTok, and I faxed it back to Zeb, and he called me back and was like, "We're putting mo- we're putting modrons in Planescape." And that was a huge thing. And I'm delighted when I see that the, the design is essentially the same kind of steampunky design that we came up with 30 years ago. Um, the yeah. other one that was huge was Tieflings. You know, they, they created pretty much, as far as I, as I can recall, I think the Tieflings were created during the Planescape era as well, yeah. um, which was, again, an amazing, you know, you're just drawing it, trying to figure it out. Yeah. So, what kind of direction would you get? Like, was it? Did they? Was it like a, an art order? Like, or did they? Was it more creative freedom? Like, mm, they probably have horns. Yeah. <laughs> well, the <laughs> early, the earlier Shelley, it was definitely like for a monster book. They were like, "Here's the entry. Just do your thing. You know, go nuts." And um, so, I would always try to be loyal, like loyal, because I grew up on all the original first edition and basic books. So, I tried to be very reverential to those books, but try to draw it in a way that I thought modern day gamers would like it. Um, but with regard to the, to the tiefling, I remember the thing that, that was tricky at the time for me to kind of get my head around was they were like, you know, it was described to me, they have fiend blood in their ancestry, but they're not alu fiends. Like it was very like, you know, it, it was more watered down, I guess. And so they were like, it can manifest in a variety of forms. They could have horns, they could have cloven hooves, they could have a tail, they could have wings. You know, they're primarily the descendants of succubi and incubi at the time. This is what I remember. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I often drew them scantily clad. That was the only way I could think of to kind of visually interpret, you know, I'm the granddaughter of a succubus, you know, or, or the grandson <laughs> of, a, of a succubus. Um, and then I would, you know, I randomize, sometimes I would do them, you know, hairless, you know, some designers had like, can you make it look like this? I really want. And we really tried to push that, that, um, that variety in, in the design so that they really, you didn't know what, you know, what they were going to look like, which was a lot of fun. I mean, I, you know, I loved, I loved that. I know now they're traditionally kind of, they have the horns and the red. I think a lot of times they're, they're a little more like devil people now, or my, yeah, yeah. There, there is, there is. I think the idea of variety in there, but traditionally, folks usually tend to go with colored skin, and uh, you know, whether it's purple or blue or red, yeah, uh, and uh, and the horns. Yeah, you're right. Yeah. Um, well, you've mentioned this a couple of times, and I want to kind of go back to it because it's something that's that's fascinating. How you're you identify with the monsters. You know that that you're you're good at drawing them, uh, but you know you said it, it, back when we started that you know that 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 is the the identity that that you identify with the most. Um, why is that? You know, wh- what was it like when you started playing Dungeons and Dragons? Was 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 it something in that monster manual? You know, from from the seventies that that spoke to you, and then is that why? What do you think? You know, I so I probably started playing in eighty one, eighty two, right right at the rise, right at, as it was becoming incredibly popular. I would have been. 11, 12 years old, I would have been in middle school, the worst time of your life. Yeah, you know, for like, everybody. Speaking so of monsters. Bad, right? Yeah. Um, and you know, it was a, in, in my school, I grew up in South Florida. And mm. so oh. in my school, what's, wait, I wa- what? I wanted to, it's number one on my notes. I can't believe I forgot to mention that. 
<laughs> Jupiter, Florida. Jupiter, Florida. I have home. a very strong connection to Jupiter, Florida. Do you? Oh, wait, do tell. I want to hear. Were you going to say home of Burt Reynolds? I was going to say home of Burt Reynolds. That's always the thing everybody <laughs> says. Anytime you it's meet It's also anybody. the home of, well, my dad right now because he's a snowbird. Okay. So yeah. we've been going to Jupiter, Florida for years, like 30 years or so. Get out. My, I swear to God, every like spring break and Christmas. Actually, I should be going there in a couple of weeks, but can't. But, no. um, but yeah, we've had every, um, at least once or twice a year, I, I go to Jupiter for the past 30 years. Oh my God. Well, we have I to. It. We I have know to, it well. Well, we have, we, we summer down there now because Ooh. we've got so much family down there and, you know, our daughter's in school, so we can only go in the summer. Sometimes we go over the holiday break, but like you, we're stuck here. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, Oh. So all a bunch of that Planescape stuff was done all down in Jupiter. I, ha- that, I have to look at Jupiter with fresh new eyes now. Yeah, now yeah. I know. And this. now you okay. know why all the the tieflings are scantily clad. Yes, I'm going I mean, to the beach and everyone's running around their bathing suits. All that too oh, hot. Go, 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 go. Too yeah. hot for chainmail. Yeah. <laughs> too hot well, not, for maybe chain not chainmail. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely uh, not chainmail. It breathes really well. <laughs> it does. It does. Yeah. <laughs> oh, that's um, so funny. You know, but yeah, so, but also, you know, uh, having grown up in Florida, you know, it was, and in Jupiter, you know, you've got a lot of beach bums. You've got a big sport. A lot of people love sports. You got a lot of rednecks. Um, <laughs> and then you've got a guy, you know, an art twerp who, you know, I love drawing um, mythical creatures and I love reading fairy tales. No, no, no. You're out. You're out of here. You're you're walking around middle school with a giant target on your back, um, and so you know D and D was like I said was very popular, but it was like a fad. I want to say more for like a year or two, and then it kind of you know gave way to Rubik's cubes and MTV and whatever the next thing that everyone got excited about. Um, but I still kept playing because I love. And, and for me personally. Um, and I've talked about this a couple times. I was kind of, we were talking earlier about a reluctant reader. I was absolutely had, I don't know if I was a reluctant reader, but I'm a visual learner. Mm-hmm. So reading books at that transitionary period where you're going from books that are heavily illustrated to books with no illustrations, I was immediately like turned off. Like, I'm like, I don't want to read this because I'm having problems understanding it. Yeah. And I want, I need pictures. So I read a lot of comic books, which you can't mm-hmm. do a book report on that. Um, but Man, I tore through those D&D rule books and every module I could get my hands on and Dragon Magazine and Dungeon Magazine. And that led to, you know, reading Tolkien, reading, you know, Elric and Edgar Rice Burroughs and, you know, on and on. So it was a huge, uh, um, you know, player in me becoming a lifelong reader. But but back to your question about feeling like a monster. I just felt misunderstood, Greg. I mean, I, yeah. I felt like I'm not a wizard. I'm not a fighter. I'm not a thief. I'm none of those things. Those things are cool. I'm the, you know, I'm an Uddyug. <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm the slime. garbage monster underneath, uh, the, underneath the city. I'm the trash heap from Fraggle Rock. You know, that's how <laughs> I felt. Marjorie, I love the trash she was heap. my favorite. Yeah, that's always when I think of the Uddyug. I'm always like, I, you know, I want a, like a soul-singing Uddyug. I need to do that <laughs> for our, our campaign. Oh my God, Got all great. this attitude. and. <laughs> so are you a dungeon master then? Or yeah, a player? Yeah, okay. I, well, I actually, we've had a group um, that we've played off and on for forever. And then actively, my daughter's 13 now, 
And so we've had an, an ongoing campaign now, I want to say maybe three years. Okay. And I wanted to run her through modules that I experienced at her age uh. so that we could have that. Con- so we can talk about the keep on the borderlands together. Like we can yeah. both have that experience. And uh, Scott Fisher, who's a, a big contributor to Dungeon Dragons over the years, is in our group. And he's actually taken over this, well, he did this year for part of the year. And now we haven't had a chance to play. But he's been running the games uh, now, which has been great so I can play and annoy yeah. everybody with my bad pirate voice. <laughs> <laughs> it's part of the game. You got to do it. That's adorable trying it? to find something that you're, you're, you and your daughter can experience uh, yeah. uh, together. I mean... It's it's a smaller comparison, but uh, Star Trek: The Next Generation came out when I was nine, and my daughter is nine now. So I was like, I'm, we're going back and watching those old episodes, and there's something just really great about me being transported into my youth, but then also her, uh, you know, uh, taking a cue from from things that were formative for me back then. That that reverb as an as a parent, and that like, oh my gosh, I was this little when I, you know, when she when she was seven, we're like, we're watching Star Wars. This is how old I was when I saw Star Wars. We're gonna right. watch it. You know, and then I'm like, I was this little, you know, and then I'm like, now I'm old and I'm watching it. (laughs) (laughs) The tears, the tears (laughs) is coming. Tears, always tears. Sounds like my son's going to have to start reading some Sweet Valley High. (laughs) Nice. So we can have that connection. (laughs) Some Babysitter's Club. (laughs) Babysitter's Club's back on Netflix. It is. I didn't watch that. I think I'm, I'm too old for Babysitter's Club. He's going to have to read Jackie Collins and Sweet Valley High. <laughs> Flowers in the Attic. Yes. Oh, my God. B.C. Oh, Andrews. Wow. Wow. There I you go. loved that. Yeah. <laughs> Definitely. That's good. Yeah. That's awesome. So as someone who loves monsters, is it hard for you to fight the monsters? As Because sometimes it is for me. Like anytime we fight a creature that has anything to do with a dog, any kind of hellhound, I'm like, I'm not, I'm not touching it. Just, just let it go. <laughs> yes. And and we were that. I, that was how I was with kobolds when I was younger. And that's how my daughter oh. is with kobolds now. Oh. We, have, we have two small rescue dogs. And they're essentially kobolds. They steal. They, they pilfer. They hide. They're uh. mischievous. They set mechanical traps. They, <laughs> sometimes I'm hit with a poison dart. I'm not sure why. <laughs> they're um, the most genius dogs ever. <laughs> They develop opposable thumbs. It's it's great. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, I try to. Um, we've definitely done some. Cla- if it's a very animal type, like an owl bear or something, I, you know, I just play it like a bear. Like and like it's just doing what it does. Right. Um, and then when we've done humanoids, we just I try to play them like from their point of view. They're right. You know, like you're the, you're the scourge. You know, you're the one who. You abandoned this dungeon, so it's rightfully ours. Why are you coming back and taking this thing from us? Like this is our lair. This is this is where we're our den. This is our you know you taste delicious, you know the. <laughs> so we may have you for dinner, um, but we always yeah I try to because I love that moral ambiguity way. More. I love when they like I feel weird that I had to kill this thing now. Like I I don't know what to do with those feelings. Like good, you guys yeah. sit around a campfire and work that out. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's the playing. good stuff, and yeah, that's the best stuff to me. Yeah, and I I think many role players, when you start off, you hack and slash through a dungeon like it's a video game, and if you stick to it long enough, within a couple of adventures, I feel you're like, wait a second, I what? How is there another way we can do this without just killing everything? And that's where it gets really good for me, at least yeah. you know my experience is, is shown. Yeah. 
That's where drama comes. Yeah, Mm -hmm. because you start to be like, where am I, where's the character going to progress and grow from from here? And that's, I mean, I think that's the thing that Dungeons and Dragons does better than any other game out there is because you you develop empathy without even realizing it. Yeah. Yes, that is true. Are there, who are, what are your particular favorite monsters either to, to drop in a game as a dungeon master or to come up against as a player or even just to illustrate? Oh, wow. That's a great uh, question. I love, I mean, I, I love the monsters that are um, wholly part of the game that are really like the beholder, the rust yeah. monster, the boule, the Albert, the stuff that only can exist in Dungeons and Dragons. I mean, I love all the, the stuff that's borrowed and inspired from Tolkien, obviously, but um, but there's a lot of fantasy that has that. And it's that weird tales, space stuff, that, that weird, wacky stuff is the stuff that really makes it so totally unique. Um, you know, even in the, if you look at the original um, wood grain, like the old, old Dungeons and Dragons stuff, there's um, Tharks, from, you know, John Carter of Mars. There's time travelers in it. Like, I love that they had that kind of vivid, rich imagination just pouring it all into the same landscape and part of, you know, this is what you could potentially encounter. That's why I loved Expedition to the Barrier Peaks when I was a kid, because I was just like, there's a spaceship in the middle of of this homlet? You know what I mean? Like, that is so cool i love all that too yeah i, I love someone, all that stuff when someone in a D game and, and described to me a it was it, it looks like a bent wand that when you hold it and you pull a lever it shoots fireballs and i'm and i'm like what what is this thing that you're describing and then it, it just oh you're talking about like a laser pistol like that's it, it blues blues blow my mind yes that's <laughs> still, awesome to this day my mind is blown i can't even say the word blown <laughs> <laughs> Of course, you're still, you're Very like, terrible. so I look down the barrel of it, and what, <laughs> <you know? laughs> what happens when I squeeze it now? <laughs> that was the thing with Expedition, was that the, you didn't know what was a, a laser gun. You didn't know what was, one was like pesticide or something, and you thought, this is the, la- I've got the pumping air, like, laser rifle, and it just squirted like, you know, DDT out of the, you know, <laughs> just great. This so good. good. Stuff. And, you know, it's interesting, that I think back on, on uh, Tomb of Horrors and that one, you know, they had those incredibly, they were very richly illustrated. And again, favorite modules, I think because of that, the way the art just had such a, an important role in the adventure. You could just, as a, as a dungeon master, you could, you could just show them the illustration. As a player, you could, you know, look at it and study it. And, and I think that absolutely would have been influential on my later contributions to the game. Yeah, absolutely. Um, the different philosophical kind of ideas that are in Planescape, you know, uh, I think really coalesce around the artwork of it, right? So how, how, how did you think, how did you approach, you know, illustrating things that were from the plane of dust versus the plane of, uh, you know, or, you know, from the, from Sigil or things like that? Like how, how did you think about, um, portraying those different things in such a way so that you didn't necessarily even have to read the text. You could be like, oh, that, that, that creature is from that plane and that creature is from that plane. 
Um, you know, it wasn't always easy, and some some things were were easier than others. I mean, mechanics, you kind of are, okay, it's got gears and cogs and always geometric shapes and stuff like that. When we did, um, I can't remember what they called hell, but it, it Beator, mm. um, we looked at, I looked at um, Hieronymus Bosch. You know, we just mm. were like, we're going to just make it look like, you know, weird bird people crawling on their hands and knees and, you know, weird chimerical demon things. Um, when we um, thought of like the, the plane of dust, I mean, honestly, I just thought of like goths, like the cure, like let's give them just big gothy hair <laughs> and, and washed out robes and stuff like that. Sigil for me was always um, Moss Eisley. Like it was always just a, oh. a who's who, like random, like anything goes, you know, you've got a, you know, a Carillion space pirate and his giant talking dog. And there's a, you know, there's a walrus-headed guy, and, you know, it's just whatever. You know, you just kind of mix it all up. It was just a big kind of mashup. So we, you know, we try, and if I didn't know, I mean, I, you know, I, um, I would call and, and ask questions. And as the, as the years went on, I, I became so friendly with a lot of the designers, like Colin McComb um, and Zeb. And uh, <laughs> I'm telling you guys the story. I'm remembering this right now. One day... Um, so I'm in Jupiter, Shelly. So I'm still in Jupiter okay. at this point. The phone rings and I see on the caller ID, it says, you know, TSR, but it was an, an extension I didn't recognize. So I, I pick up the phone and I go, hello. And they're like, who is this? And I said, it, it's, it's Tony. Who is this? And I don't, I can't place the voice. And they're like, this is blah, blah, blah in accounting. And I go, oh, is something wrong with my billing or something and they're like no we have all these long distance phone calls to this number and i need to know who everybody's calling <laughs> so they were paying the bill like oh my god i guess apparently long phone calls to jupiter florida from like three different people and uh i was like oh i'm the illustrator for planescape we're having you know we're changing the world you know oh <laughs> my god i love that they have they had a call find out <laughs> who is this that's you know, it'd be why cheaper if you were on staff <laughs> yeah that's why tsr went under was all the long distance phone was call me. Uh, it was you <laughs> yeah mm. there it goes profits the went down i from... know so oh. were you at tsr when wizards bought tsr I, that would have been late 90s. I was phasing out. So in, in mid-90s, uh, my wife and I, Angela, moved to New York City. Um, she became a makeup artist for NBC. And I was um, still illustrating for TSR, though not as much. I, was, I switched gears and was illustrating for Magic more at that point and really chasing um, the New York City publishing uh, houses to try to break into children's publishing. And... Um, so a couple things kind of happened at the same time. There was like a lot of turnover near the end of the 90s uh, in, in-house at TSR. So when that started to happen, the art directors that came on were more like, yeah, we're going to bring on some other people on Planescape. And that kind of suited me just fine at that point because I'd done it at, I, you know, for most of the decade and I was a little burned out. The deadlines were really, really rough. They were brutal. Mm. I mean... Those those things. I mean, I was illustrating those things. You would ask earlier, how many would I do a day? I mean, some days I did like three or four illustrations a day. Wow. I mean, I was just going and going. A couple of those things I was doing all nighters to get those deadlines. And bear in mind, the, uh, the I had no scanner. I didn't even have a computer. 
So I would finish all the art, put it in a FedEx box and FedEx it in batches up to wow. Lake Geneva and, uh, you know, where they'd scan it and do all the, all the production oh, work it's up just, there. And it's the originals. Oh, yeah. Like, yeah. that just makes me so nervous yeah. thinking about, like, there's yeah. no backup. Just pray yeah. that box gets there. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You did. You just were like, okay, well, here it goes. Off it goes. But, you know, again, at the time, you're just like, there was no other way. What's this worth? Yeah. No, you know, whatever. Who cares? <laughs> same with magic. I mean, you know, the, the the same thing. You would just put them. I would literally put it in a, I would not even open the FedEx box. I would leave it flat and just tape it and just put the magic art in it and tape it shut and send it. Wow. <laughs> I know. Now you're like, <gasps> you know. Well, it doesn't even leave the studio. I think for most people, it's just, you know, you upload it. Exactly, right? Like, a, yeah. or, you know, at least take a photo of it and send that, like, rather than, uh, yeah. uh, gosh, it's so, it's it's very strange to be in that, like, 90s period where all this old school publishing thing was happening, but there's so much uh, technology on the horizon. Yeah, yeah. It's um, the last of the analog, really. Yeah. Kind of making things in an analog way. Amazing. So how did you break into children's publishing in, in New York? What's the, what, was it just persistence and, and good ideas? Uh, with persistent luck, really. I mean, it's, it's the same, the classic, you know, formula. I, you know, I did, it was the end of the, uh, again, kind of feel like this is the theme of, of the chat today. It was the end of the drop off your portfolio in person because there was no social media. There was no really website. You couldn't send them to a website. They're like, here's, all, here's a portfolio of my work. So what they used to do in the old days was you'd go, you know, you'd go to the publisher on like a Thursday or a Friday and you'd drop off your portfolio and then you'd come pick it up on a Monday and they'd have a form letter in there. It's like, you know, thanks for your submission. We'll, you know, we'll call you. Mm. And I got to experience kind of the end of that era um, when I was in New York. So you, you'd, you know, you'd leave, you know, a couple color copies of your art and, and you'd have a bunch of samples in your portfolio. And I did that for about a year, you know, just making the rounds and you'd meet people along the way. Um, as I said, Angela, my wife, was a makeup uh, artist and she worked at MAC down in Soho, MAC Cosmetics. And mm-hmm. right around the corner from her was Scholastic, publishers of books like Harry Potter mm-hmm. and, um, and Scholastic book fairs. And a, a, a gal came in to get her makeup done and Angela sees her. She has the Scholastic bag. She goes, oh, do you work at Scholastic? And she's like, yeah. So... <laughs> Ange does the makeup on one eye and she goes, how do you think? Yeah, it looks good. Can you do the other eye? I need to know, can I have my husband drop his stuff off? Oh, nice. Held her hostage with one eye done. One eye eye done. done. Yeah, 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 one eye done. Well, because that's a lot of people would be like, I got to go to a thing. Can I get get a thing and I'll buy the lipstick and the eyeshadow kind of thing. So she, I, she relented and was like, here, here's my card, whatever. And I, and I came in like the next day, the following day and, and just, you know, I was very much like, Hey, listen, you know, I don't, I don't want to be a pest here. You look at it. If it's something you think you can do something with, then that's great. And if you can, I understand. I don't want to be a burden. And she looks like, wow, you're really talented. And let me see if I can, I can get somebody in there. And I met, uh, an editor named Kevin Lewis who changed my life and, and, um, no one at Scholastic, they weren't that interested in my stories and my art, but Kevin uh, jumped ship and went to Simon & Schuster and immediately mm. um, he started publishing my books and, you know, the rest is history. Wow. Oh my God. When, what year yeah, was that? Pretty, Just out of curiosity. That was late, that was like 90, 98, I want to say, 98, because my first kid's book came out in 2000, so I would have handed in all the art for that 
in in '99. You always hand it in about a year early. Right. And uh, at that point, I don't think I was doing much for for Dungeons and Dragons. I did a little bit for Third Edition because they were ramping up for Third Edition at that point. But I continued doing Magic cards right up until Spiderwick, like because the the Magic uh, stuff. I mean, it was it was less work for more pay. It means you're doing essentially one image and you're making more money than you would right. for Dungeons and Dragons. So I, I did the magic cards right into all oh, the Spiderwick things kind of taken off. I don't know if I can <laughs> do any work for you guys. I wish I could. And so, uh, <laughs> so yeah, that was kind of that. That was it. Once Spiderwick took off, I was, I was gone. Nice. Okay. Well, I, the reason I ask is I, I moved to New York in 2000. Uh, yeah. And I lived in Brooklyn. Uh, and so wait, left, where did you live? I lived in Williamsburg uh, before it got big. Uh, well, even Park Slope then was was on the rise, but it wasn't what no, it is yeah. now. That's for sure. Yeah. yeah. That's where we were. So we you were, were in really Park Slope. close. Oh, we were, yeah. I had a lot we of friends there. Yeah. yeah. It was hard to get I there. Yeah, I had to go basically into Manhattan to get to Park to to get to Park Slope because uh, yes, the did. G train was a pain in the ass. But uh, yes, it was. I had a lot of fun, uh, you know, going there. And there's there's you know, I, I still see like images of like Grand Army Plaza and stuff in uh, in movies and stuff. And I'm always like, oh yeah, I love that area. Oh, I know where that is. Yeah, I know where that yeah. is. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, exactly. So what is it about children's books that's appealing to you? Writing stories for kids. I think that. Um, that's when I became a reader. I mean, we talked about in middle school, you know, I'm playing Dungeons and Dragons and I'm reading these books in middle school and, and they make, they help me become a lifelong reader. So I'm, mm-hmm. I, I was probably a little behind what other kids were reading. So I read, you know, Phantom Tollbooth and, and uh, Wrinkle in Time and, and things like The Hobbit and stuff. And th- those types of stories absolutely, you know, shaped me um, at that age. And I wanted to be part of that community, part of that conversation. Um, I, I just feel like those stories, um, have such a tremendous impact on, on a young developing human mind. Yeah. And I, I just really wanted to, to be a part of that. Like, you know, just, it's the stuff that's most meaningful to me when I think back on, you know, when someone's like, give me your top 10 books that you've read and loved. They're all kids books. Mm-hmm. You know, there's adult books that I love, but I mean, but that, that stuff that, you know, when I read Watership Down, I was like, mm-hmm. like shook. Yes. Like I was just, you know, so, uh, you know, that's, that's what I'm, that's what I aspire towards. Yeah. It's gotta be very rewarding to see, to talk to kids. Cause you do like, I assume you do like school visits and things like that to to see them the way they, I mean, it, how much do you make questions aside, but to actually like <laughs> see like the impact that your work is having on them and how excited they get, you know, about when's the next book coming and how immersed they feel with the characters and like, you know, my, my son wants to live in your world, the world that, that you created. It's got to feel, it's got to feel good. Very validating, John. Yeah. It really is. I mean, and you know, I figure first of all, kids tell it like it is. They're not going to. Yes. <laughs> they're not going to. I, w- I wouldn't have read gonna, you the review if it yeah. was a bad review. <laughs> She's like, I read the review for book one. I didn't read the book review for book two. Both we're, the- <laughs> we're starting book two tonight. I will <laughs> let you know. <laughs> oh, hopefully, you like it too. That's good. Um, yeah, I just 
that when they come up and they're and if their parent, I mean, any adult, like if a teacher or librarian or a parents, like we read it together, like yeah, that's like gold for me because I'm fortunate enough that my mom read to us Dieterlitzi kids, so um, that's like a very cherished memory in in yeah. my memory banks, and so um, the idea of of sharing books together, I, I absolutely it's like. To me, it's like watching a movie together or listening to a, a favorite song together, like the and then talking about it afterwards. Um, that is very meaningful to me. Yeah, it is very sweet, and uh-huh. it's it's so formative to have those worlds to go into, you know, and and have the maps and the things be a part of your life. You know, it's it's the good stuff that Dungeons and Dragons can do for young ages as well. But there is yeah. something um, about cracking open a book and going to another world for, for a few hours. I don't know if you guys have experienced this, but the thing with, with both D&D and a fantasy story was a, if it did tackle some worldly themes, but somehow you're in a safer space to talk about them. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? So um, that happened with me a lot. Like we talked about Watership Down, mm. you know, and, and I would talk to my mom or about it or Hobbit, you know, and like, you know, this, you know, that, that was, that was terrible. What, you know, what, what this character did to this character. And then we would kind of talk about it and then inevitably it would, it would jump out into the real world. And you'd started to see these parallels and the things that were happening in these stories or in a D and D game. And you could start to see these things playing out also in the real world. And I, I, I think for some of us, myself included, you, I like that there's maybe a safe place to talk about some of these types of things and, 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 and start to process and comprehend these concepts. And if it's in a world with a talking rabbit who's best friends with a dragon, then I'm, I'm all for that. Absolutely. Makes it even better. Yeah. Yeah. I hope so. (laughs) And I think it makes the youth who are reading it, you know, think about you know, what, what people today might call political topics, but like things like, you know, uh, racism and sexism and things that are, are, are um, you know, still very prevalent in our world. But I feel like the youth are always experiencing that through the stories that are told and asking those questions. And I, I feel real sad. I mean, I came from a, a bit of a religious background where fantasy was always at an arm's length. It was always like, eh, you know, I'll let you read those dragon stories, but you got to have you know, quote unquote, real books to read as well. And um, I feel like I learned more from Star Trek. I learned more from, from Planescape. I learned more from, from the children's books that we got into because they were so open about, you know, what it, what it feels like to be other, what it feels like to uh, walk in shoes that aren't yours at that moment. And, yeah. and, and um, I don't know. I, I, I feel optimistic thinking about the fact that, that my kids and, and Shelly's kids and, and, and your kids and everybody's kids are getting these stories that have so much representation and diversity of characters within them, um, you know, that, that, that hopefully we can push towards, you know, a better future for, mm-hmm. you know, the, tw- the people who are going to be leading this world in 2050. And that fantasy is not kept at arm's length anymore. Right. It's yeah. very, you know, it's been embraced by educators and by, by parents because we know, like you, you said, D&D is what got you into book. I mean, yeah, you wanted to read books with, with pictures or comic books, but we, and we hear that a lot, that people, yeah. kids just get real immersed in these worlds and they just want more. Yeah. Yeah. I, I agree. And I, I do. I think that, um, you know, I mean, 
Shelley, you read Kenny and the Dragon um, with with your son, so you saw it's about prejudice. I mean, that's mm-hmm. simply that's what that story is about, and 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 it dives in deeper in the Book of Beast and talks about that more. Um, because I wrote that story during the backdrop of what was going on the last two years in our country, and yeah. it, it inevitably is going to soak in to the storytelling. And I yeah. think that the same can be said for any D&D game that we'd be running. We may be escaping reality by rolling dice and, and, and being an elf or a halfling or what have you, but you're still talking. There's, that stuff is still in your mind. You're still thinking about that. Yeah. Um, and I think that's a good thing, especially with our kids. I think it's a great thing because like, this book will now give us a way to talk to him about prejudice in a way that's going to be easily understood for a seven-year-old. Yeah. And it's, you know, his, one of the things about, there's, there's pros and cons to having your kids at home while they're doing school. <laughs> yeah. But one of the pros is like, I mean, I can hear what they're talking about in class. And when the teacher reads them a story, she does these, they have to talk about connections. They're real big on the connections, Yeah, which I don't remember doing, Greg, I don't know if you did this, but you're probably hearing your kids doing it now. And after they read a story, they, they talk about how a personal connection to the story. What in your life can you relate to with what you're reading? And the, man, the things that these kids talk about, some of them, because they're just kids. I mean, they don't, they don't have a filter, but you, you hear like, they go pretty deep and just like, and it seems like, well, this is just a kid's book, you know, but it's not, they, they are, they really are reaching deep to find those connections and how they, they feel, you know, particularly personally impacted by something. They're smarter than we are. Yeah. Yeah. They they're exposed to more than we ever were. Um, they're seeing things. They're they're much more um, inundated with everything, the good and bad, news, yeah. not news, whatever you know. It's they are very aware of what's going on, and the, I find as a parent the tricky part is talking. I don't I don't want to take my daughter's childhood away from her by burdening her with all the realities of the world. Right. But I'm also trying to. Just talk to her realistically, like, here's what's going on right now. And that's such a tough balancing act. Yeah. Um, but, but you know, again, I think, you know, having, playing a game of D&D or, or Magic or, or, you know, whatever board games you want to do or, or a video game or, or reading a book together, I think those, those reinforce closeness and family. Um, and you don't have to be flesh and blood. You can you can just be friends that are your family or people in your life that are family. And that's so important, especially during uh, times like we're living through right now. Yeah. Yeah. It gives a language. It gives like a uh, a reference point for them to be able to discuss all that. And it's yeah. uh, it's great. Yeah. So good job. You're doing you're doing good work. Uh, you know, you're doing from, the work for us. For 30 years, 40 years you've been doing it. Before there were computers. <laughs> Yeah, that's great. There's that an old, Free old guy. Old D&D guy. Yeah. Out your quill pen. <laughs> I did use quill pens. I was, I was totally, we, I, it was an artistic By state. choice, by choice. Yes, by choice. Yes, definitely. <laughs> yes, yes. I'd, I'd love to see that again, that kind of exploration, that kind of, um, I think, you know, it's interesting. Um, I, um, Richard Witters invited me to talk to the D&D uh, team during this pandemic, they kind of have like coffee together and, mm-hmm. and talk. And I was delighted to talk to to the team and stuff because I, we've enjoyed Fifth Edition greatly. Um, and we just talked about different 
aspects of the game and stuff. And, and um, you know, we were like, you know, the game, the beauty of this, this game is, vision, as far as an artist is concerned, is you can actually make it look like you could do, if you wanted to do an anime manga version, you could make it look like that. If you wanted to do a super realistic version, you could make it like everyone's visualizing it in their own way. And the, and the, the beauty of it is the game works on in any of those versions, which is yeah. just so unbelievably amazing to me that you can do that. And, and, and I think artistically in the coming years, it would be, you know, I challenged them to be like, find someone unexpected to illustrate D and I think would be, yeah, sure. You'll, you'll, it'll be met with some pushback, but I also think that's how you open, you, you also start to open doors and push the ground. And certainly in describing what is fantasy art now, because I think that is to me more compelling than anything that, that a game that at, for many years would have been viewed, the artwork and the visuals were, you know, below, you know, weren't even considered for so many years. And now has become a shaper of the genre, you know, an influencer of what we think of when we think of fantasy illustration. Um, I think that's, that's incredible. And I think that that they they can actually use that to really push the boundaries of when we think of an elf or a wizard or an owl bearer or a kobold or what have you, what that looks like. And I yeah. and I'm really excited to see what's to come. Yeah, and I hope um, there's a there's a chance or an opportunity for someone to get the the uh, opportunity that you had to to work on it in a in a a new story or, or reimagining of a story that is like one artist's vision or at least one art director's kind of vision of, of, of what it looks like. I think there's a lot of different uh, styles and um, aesthetics that can be pushed uh, that I, you know, I, I'm not a visual person. I don't, I'm not a, I wouldn't even consider myself an artist, but I love seeing that and, 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 and it transports me into another world and I'm waiting for, um, you know, as we're looking to what the future of Dungeons and Dragons is like, you know, it's, sky's the limit not only in our imaginations but just like what the visualizations can do to uh to put that seed of imagination in everybody who reads the book's mind i think that's could be why it, it's tricky to adapt it into like a feature film or something i know mm-hmm. there's been talk of that for years because i think each one of us has a different visual idea of what they think the game yeah. should look like it could be partly informed by when we came into the game you know, so for me, D and D always has kind of a cheesy '80s veneer to yeah, it yeah. that I love. You know, um, but someone else who might came in when I was contributing in the '90s thinks, "Oh, it's all gritty and dirty and grungy, and that's the you know, and mm-hmm. steampunky and all that kind and of." There's Robert then, Smith uh, hanging out in the corner <laughs> with Chewbacca, <laughs> yeah. smoking clove cigarettes. <laughs> oh, oh, that's totally roll a savings throw. <laughs> <laughs> that's awesome bad robert smith impersonation i liked it i, liked I thought it, it was lot. good oh okay All yeah right. but i mean do it till it's annoying <laughs> but your point about the visualization i i totally agree it's it's why i think the the next dramatization of dungeons and dragons should be a combination of uh you know reality what's happening at the table and yeah. what each care each person at that table is imagining uh, and it oh, will look completely cool. different. And because I mean, the only thing that is very D and D, other than all the visual looks and stuff that we've been talking about, um, 
is the fact that there is a story that's told at the table and then there's a story that's happening in each player's head. And yeah. I, I feel like to have a, a dramatization of Dungeons and Dragons, it needs to have both of those or else you're just, you know, you're retreading a, a, a Lord of the Rings or Harry Potter or, or Spiderwick or whatever it is, right? Like you're just showing right. a different IP. But for me, it's so much about that conversation between the collective imagination and the drama that can happen amongst friends at a table. That'd be really, really cool if they could pull that off. I don't think they can. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> they, meaning, you know, the... Yeah, whoever. You know, whoever it Hollywood is. Hollywood producers that are going to try to crack this, but yeah. It's probably too difficult to, to do, but I, the way you just mentioned that, I'd be like, oh, what if it looks different depending on what mm-hmm. character's point of view is... Uh, you know, so say like the dungeon master's got one point of view and you see that visualization, yeah. but then you yeah. see the fighter makes it look at, you know, he's got a much more different way of thinking about it or she's got a much cool with that. I think that would be really cool. I do too. It's like the affair. Remember that TV show? You didn't watch it. No, it was the affair. The, but like they had different, they would show the same scene, but from different characters. Oh, I and see. it was really interesting because like, they obviously have different perceptions about how things happen. Yeah. There's a famous X Files episode that does that too, where yeah, you yeah, see I the same that. plot, yeah. but it's one yeah. from from yeah. Scully, one from Mulder, and Mulder, yeah, very yeah. different. Yeah, yeah, you could. You, I wonder if you. That sounds less like a movie though, and more like a, a series. That would right. be a way to do it, which would be so so cool because you could see the dungeon masters. Everything's just it is like Tolkien. It's super serious and real. Yeah. You know, and then the fighter, everything's just small and puny compared to the fighter. <laughs> yeah. You know, and like, he or she's just walking around like, yeah, take it out, you know. And the wizard cowering in the corner. Yeah, um, yeah, totally. But it's <laughs> like even how, you, like, just you as a player likes uh, monsters. Like, you would have a different, the way you would see a monster is different yeah. than the way other people in your party would yeah, I think so. I mean, monster. that's it's it's funny too because when so when I when when I DM, I always like to show them a picture of the monster. So I'll I'll you know I have the the books on PDF and stuff, so I can print out the picture of the thing. And so it's always like, what version do I want to do I want to show them of the thing? You know, and and it is hard. You know, so I first of all, it's never my version. It's always somebody else's. I think is way cooler than the thing I drew. But I, you know, I go back to some of the weirdness of those early. I mean, I love that, uh, Shelly, you mentioned the, the blog post I did years ago oh, for yeah. the, the toys. I mean, I love that story that Gygax Me too. buys a, a, a bag of dime store plastic toys and turns them into, I, you know, with Tim Cask, turns them into these iconic. I know. And I love that you kind of showed the evolution of how like this little toy Turns into a yeah. rust monster. I've got them all over my <laughs> desk. I've got the 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 you know the the, the little <laughs> the rusty rust guy. So I, I I connected with. I'm going to totally geek out now, and, and there's going to be a two people in your audience who'll get this. But <laughs> I can I connected recently with Errol Otis, who was oh, one of the early. Oh yeah. Um, and so I have been slowly collecting all the things that that little article about the the origins of some of those D&D monsters I've been kind of annotating on, on a first or second edition monster manual of like where they got all the inspiration that fascinates me to no end you know so I've got the Lumley book that was the inspiration for the Mind Flayer I've got the um the uh it's the sci-fi book that is the displacer where the displacer beast came from and so when I talked to Errol, I, I knew he designed two iconic D&D monsters, the Remoraz, 
which he corrected me. That's how you say it. The Remoraz oh. and the Ankhed, the Ankheg, which are basically, if you think about it, are kind of the same in, in look, the way they're kind of wormy, insectic, insectoid things. Mm-hmm. So I asked him, when you did these for Dragon Magazine, that's the first time they appear and you designed them, what were you looking at? And he goes, oh, hold on. We were zooming. And he comes back with two rubber toys. Oh, my God. I tracked one down on eBay. This rubber jiggly toy from the 1960s wow. is the Ankheg. Oh, my God. That's what he used to design it. And I'm like, my geek head just exploded. I was like, went bonkers. I'm still trying to track down the other one, which I'm now going to regret that I shared it on your podcast because now we're all on eBay looking for the same trying to find rubber, the same toy. <laughs> rubber toys. Yeah. Wait, don't, don't but, put um, rubber toys in the, in the search bar though. Yeah, exactly. But uh, <laughs> so cool. That is so cool. cool I see. love that it comes from something that is like yeah. also very uh, centered around child imagination, right? Like, I mean, how many times, I mean, maybe we're of an age where we can remember this, but having like little army guys and, and little yeah. just yeah. plastic bits and bobs were like the only toys yes. you had back then yes. and so you in order to make them entertaining you had to come up with stories and come up with personalities and why they were and that was just codified by 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 Gygax and, and the visualization team um in those early manuals and it's it's still the 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 stuff that we do today when we bring the NKG out or the mind flayer out it's still you know i love that there's just iterations of little plastic toys yeah, I mean the um, the ogre and the troll are modified plastic army men. Essentially, that's what they were. Dave Sutherland whittled on a set of little. I think they were um, Native American, like Apache warriors, and then painted them up with like model paint and like, which would explain the scale, right? Because if you take a uh, a traditional army man and place it next to like a you know what would have been a war gaming miniature, right? Because that's really all they had. Yeah. You know, you there's your scale. Right, bigger. Which is the same for, you know, you put an owl bear next to the thing and it's the same scale. So um, I think that's just so cool that that also, it, it's it's by necessity. Like, well, it's big because, you know, the, the, the toy's big. So I guess that's how big it is. That's just mind-blowing to me. <laughs> that they're just grabbing, like you said, just crap off their, t- you know, here. One of the stories I heard was Gygax takes a stuffed animal and puts it in the middle of the play mat and says, roll initiative. <laughs> Come on, You're dude. That is a teddy bear. awesome. <laughs> yes. This is like no. a giant teddy bear god. You know, and it bleeds beans or yeah. something, you know, like a beanie baby. Like, can you imagine how amazing that would have been? It's like Stay Puff Marshmallow, man. Games. Yeah. Yes, it's totally like the Stay Puff Marshmallow. Oh that, that, you hit it, Greg. When Stay Puff Marshmallow, when you see that, when you saw that for the first time in Ghostbusters, you're like, what the what? That's the same feeling I get when I, that I love about D&D and the, that unpredictability mm-hmm. of, of it. Like, wait, what is it? You're fighting <laughs> <Right>? that? I <laughs> love that. I love that about the game. That's awesome. Well, so good. I feel like uh, you know we should we should talk again because I feel like there's a lot more yeah. uh, to go over. We didn't really even get into uh, what's cool about Spiderwick and all the uh, amazing work that you're doing. Um, so uh, thank you so much uh, for joining us, uh, Tony, and, and talking through some of this older stuff as well as um, you know sharing the stories of of uh, uh, playing with your with your kids and and all that stuff. It's just been it's been a great great interview. Thank you. Oh, yes. it's my pleasure, Greg Shelley. Thank you guys for having me. Longtime listener, love being on the show. It's it's uh, it's my pleasure. Hope you guys are safe and well. You too. 
Very Aww, exciting. That was good. What are you excited about for 2021, Shelley? D&D. More specifically? More D&D? <laughs> <laughs> what about... Writing about D&D? Writing about a podcast about D&D, perhaps? Yes! Writing about talking about D&D? <laughs> <laughs> Which is what we're doing. Uh, we, I think we mentioned this before, but we are writing a book about Dragon Talk. It's called, tentatively, Welcome to Dragon Talk. And we'll be working mm. on that all year long. So very excited about that. Yes. We are very excited about that. That's your New Year's resolution. Yeah. So, I'm, I am. Like, I have to, you know, go back through the library and listen to old episodes and... I don't like hearing myself, but I do like hearing the interviews. And I, I, I love revisiting some of, of these wonderful guests that we've gotten to talk to. And yeah, it's fun. And sometimes I laugh at like our old jokes and stuff. I'm like, <laughs> it's, it's still funny. <laughs> You've been the second time. Still kicking it. Still kicking it. Still side kicking it up. Yeah. Lifting you up as we go along. Also, that, that would be like a good subtitle for our book. Ooh, right. Although very yeah. like... Insidery. I like that. Lifting up. Put it on the list. (laughs) Well, if you are excited about bringing uh, new folks into Dungeons and Dragons, there is a really good way to do that, which is send them to uh, the D&D YouTube page, perhaps, or uh, DungeonsandDragons.com, where they can find out about all the latest products and information, or Dragon Plus. You can download that onto your phone. Or access that content at dragonmag.com. There's a short story of mine still available on Dragon Plus. Yes. uh, Set in the Icewind Dale, Rime of the Frost Maiden. So check that out if you haven't yet. The Uh, internet is forever. Eagerly await for the Dragon Talk book to come out. That'll have to tide you over. Of course. Yeah, read read very slowly. (laughs) Or just uh, reread Confessions of a Part-Time Sorceress, perhaps. There you go. Everything I learned, I learned from... Uh, Chris Perkins. He's no. mentioned in that book. He's mentioned. He's mentioned. It's in there. He's mentioned. Uh, so yeah, that's a great way for you to jump in. There's also the D&D Discord uh, server where you can meet and uh, hang out with like-minded fans. Um, there's lots of ways to get into the game and we are here to tell you about them. And you know, I might also recommend that maybe if you just want to watch some D&D, you might want to check out that very wonderful Stranger Things cast uh, holiday game that was run by Chris Perkins that we um, aired over the the holiday break. And it is delightful. It is so fun to see the... Actors who were acting, playing D&D, actually playing D&D. It's so, yes. it's like, I mean, everybody wanted to see it happen. And it, as soon as you do, you're like, oh, yeah, this just this fits. It Yes, it felt very natural and very fun. And it's always fun to watch Chris Perkins as a Dungeon Master. He is a excellent storyteller. Um, and we got some great stuff uh, that he's been working on that we can't wait to tell you about. In the coming weeks, soon, uh, that should soon. be super fun. Um, in the meantime, you can follow me at Greg Tito on Twitter and Greg underscore Tito on Instagram. Yes, Shelly Moo. You, you can follow me at Shelly Moo on, on Twitter and Instagram as well. And of course, Dungeons and Dragons is at Wizards underscore D&D. Uh, there's also on the Instagrams, all that fun stuff for following along with what's happening in the Dungeons and Dragons universe. 
Yeah. Uh, and speaking of which, in our own little universe, Drunky Two Shoes and Daryl Two Shoes have reunited. My God. This is, I feel like, I almost feel like we should just stop it now because I don't <laughs> want them to ever be split up again. Exactly. Yeah. So uh, at the end of last session, uh, Shelly playing Drunky Two Shoes rescued Daryl from a ship and they jumped off A Team Fall Guy style and freeze frame with them jumping off the boat uh, into the water. And we will pick it right back up with them going into the water and they remember that they're cats and they hate water. Right. How far are we from the boat that we rode up on? um, You guys get out of the water, (laughs) sputtering and, and, uh, uh, you know, shooting out as much of the water uh, out of your faces as you can. You look around and your boat that you came up on is around uh, 50 feet away. It's kind of veered away uh, a little bit from, from where you are. So where's my friend, the guy that was helping me? He's up there on the deck of the boat still, kind of in melee with uh, some of the sailors that were trying to stop him. Okay. I yelled to him to jump, jump, get get down here, jump. Uh, make me... Actually, are you using any kind of uh, uh, magic or anything to no. amplify your voice? No. Okay, then I'm going to try and see if he can hear you. Uh, he does. Uh, oh. So, yeah, he, got a, he rolled a, a 16... Uh, for his perception. So he goes, uh, uh, you hear someone say, like, whoa, 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 stop, whoa, hold on, no more fighting. And uh, uh, there's like a pause on the boat. And he's, he says, well, hold that thought. You kind of hear someone say that. And uh, this snively, um, short Danny DeVito-like captain uh, was like, what do you mean? Don't get them. And uh you all of a sudden see a very large shadow uh, go across your face as uh, your friend is now also jumping into the water. And cannonball! (laughs) (laughs) Uh, It lands right on a big wave of water uh, on you. And Daryl's like, oh, God, you couldn't have just jumped a little bit to the left. That's what Daryl It's okay. Okay, we're heading. Let's go towards our boat. Let's go. And you're okay. a, a human, so you have to help us because we're cats. Oh, okay. Uh, I don't know Come if on. I can... I, I, I'll try. Um, and uh, he makes an athletics check, uh, and eh, he gets, you know, he, he does pretty well. Um, so yeah, he just starts going as much as he can, and one of the guys on the ship um, uh, is trying to stop you and throws throws a throws a dagger uh, at um, one of you. It's gonna go. Ooh, it goes against you, Drunky Two Shoes. Uh, oh, okay. So it's um, a nine total. Does that hit your AC? No. Oh, nice. Okay, so a a dagger kind of pierces the water right next to you, um, but doesn't hit you. And you guys are continuing to swim, and we'll pick it back up oh. there. Next time, as you make your way Yay! That was close. You're in the water. You're very wet, and you don't like it. But I got my brother back. And he's already complaining. I know, and I'm wondering. I did all this just so he can complain about getting wet. He's off the boat. (laughs) I saved you. But, okay. Awesome. Yay, 
Dare on yeah. the Junkie. <laughs> theme, theme song. song. <laughs> yep. <laughs> All right. Happy New Year, everyone. We did it. <laughs>